Pat Riley was the last one in Miami to assemble the big three down there with a true recruiting focus. He went in and sold them and pitched them, but he had to get Wade to recommit. And then he got LeBron and Bosch to join. But now it's much more player to player driven. LeBron bringing Anthony Davis, that was the key to transitioning the Lakers from worst to first. We think LeBron's getting paid what he's worth. The short answer is for sure LeBron is underpaid. I would agree. I personally hate the fact that you can celebrate a long-term extension. You feel like you got him locked up. You make these incredible financial commitments. And then he can James Harden his way out of here in a year or two. And it's a disturbing trend in the NBA for sure. Could Jordan do what LeBron is doing today to the league back in their era? LeBron could disrupt things and impact business for a little bit, but the league will go on. LeBron has been different because wherever he's gone, it has followed. You know, Jordan was in one place and it all came to him. So my guest today is a former lawyer, former executive, former president of the LAFC, and former general manager, and my favorite guy to watch on ESPN when he would analyze who should go to what team with the salary cap, and I would be glued him doing all the stuff that he would do. And now we've established a relationship together, and I just wanted to have him on Valuetainment as a guest. So, Tom, thank you so much for being a guest on Valuetainment. My pleasure. Good to see you. Man, you look good. Good to see you. I told you I'm trying to look like a GM. Today I look like a GM, and you look like the agent of one of the players. <laughs> well, you know, hey, I'll take whatever I can get. <laughs> so, so question for you. How do you go from a criminal defense attorney handling cases including murder, armed robbery, and other serious felonies to wanting to become a GM? How does an attorney go to wanting to become a GM and an executive? <laughs> That's when you start wanting to become a GM and you go do what you can do first. That's what happened there. I, that makes sense. Yeah, I was in law school and knew I didn't want to go work for a big law firm. I did that in the summers. And so I wanted to do something sports related. And I just struck out, man. I tried everything. I went to the NBA primarily. That was my interest in uh, still have the box of rejection letters upstairs in my uh attic space and uh you know it was back when you sent a real letter and got a real letter in return and then i went to work as a criminal defense lawyer i went to work with my dad he was a really accomplished criminal defense attorney and i took a position as a part-time public defender and that gave me a caseload of like four cases every week wow four cases set for trial you just sort of rolled through it and i ended up 20 plus jury trials and yeah stuff is interesting as uh first degree murder and you know got not guilties in that which was a crazy experience and really everything in between uh and then segued into being an agent and then eventually got lucky and found my way into the nba now is your dad's temperament like yours are you guys are you similar in temperament or no yeah we were very similar he was a terrific orator in his day and just a a total stud as a criminal defense attorney he really had a presence and was was quite a name and that was interesting for me because i came in with the exact same name he's thomas j penn jr and i'm thomas penn the third right so i came in not only in his shadow or adjacent to him i had the exact same name so they kind of called me the third around there which was odd because you know i never been known as that but 
it was the best years, man. And I went to do it for two years and Patrick, I did it for six. I worked side by side with my dad. You know, we tried cases together. He he gave me the flexibility to build my sports start uh, by pursuing becoming an agent and, you know, just being entrepreneurial in spirit, but having the safety net of a good career in my core business there. And uh, it was a lot of fun, man. It was really cool. Let me ask you, what helped you out in uh, transitioning from being a criminal defense attorney six years? That's not a short period. That's a long time. What helped you out from there to being an agent, to being a GM or assistant GM working with Jerry West or president of LAFC? What strength did this give you to, you know, go into these other jobs that you had? Well, I went to law school just to have the core education, not knowing what it would lead to. It was either MBA or law school. My only regret maybe was not doing an MBA while I was there. But I felt like having the law degree gave a basis for whatever happened. And I was more drawn to business. But first, starting in criminal defense, you know, that is like, there's nothing like being on trial and representing somebody sitting right next to you with his or her life on the line and you're having to perform in front of a jury live. Uh, it's kind of like coaching a game, right? You don't, there's a timetable, there's decisions you have to make, you have to express yourself clearly, and you have to persuade. So all those sorts of skills were being honed at that part of my career, and you gotta work your tail off and be prepared, you know? So you're prepared, you're timely, you gotta make these decisions on trial and then be persuasive. So all that kind of wraps together to uh, take you to the next level or take me to the next next level on my career. As far as the transition to sports, the advantage for me was I had the time to try to make that happen. So two of those six years, I was solely focused on just trying cases, winning, building that kind of business, Mm -hmm. learning two years goes by like that. Then I got into a two-year run where I was trying to build the sports business, and I had the flexibility to do that, to fail. took me an extra year to do what I wanted to do in the first six months, which was get a sponsor to sponsor a trip over to Europe. So I had enough time to do all that and then ultimately come out of it on the other side to be prepared to jump to the NBA. Is the sponsor, was that Upper Deck that sponsored you to go yeah. to Europe? How did you do that? How did you get Upper Deck to sponsor you? Research, I like that. Yeah, we were the Upper Deck All-Stars. It was a group of uh, free agents from mostly the Chicago area. And I just banged on a bunch of doors. I mean, I just kept, uh, it was title sponsorship of the team and the tour. And that was when the internet was coming online and websites. And I had like this little 3D virtual experience in an arena because I had a cousin who could build those sorts of models. It was totally like a side thing. So I just threw all that at a sponsor to see what they liked and ended up finding my way to Upper Deck Trading Card Company. And they had a, a guy named Yoss Boss. I'll never forget him over in Amsterdam. And he had budget. He was looking to extend outside of football into basketball. And I found my way in front of him and he had a little budget. So we became the Upper Deck All-Stars and did two tours. And that's what made it all work because I couldn't afford to underwrite it myself. Any, any crazy players at the time that you were working with? No, nobody, anybody would know. A few of them went on to the NBA. One was a guy named Donald Whiteside, who was a very good, talented point guard who ended up playing for the Toronto Raptors and is now a coach. 
and a couple other players, most of which ended up earning a living in Europe. And I was just trying to kind of get things started and, and learn the business. And, and over the course of that period of time, I also read the collective bargaining agreement in the NBA and, and I got educated on how those rules worked and I could talk that talk a little bit. So I had that basis of information. I, I read it cover to cover and I outlined it like a law school textbook. How big is it? I mean, how technical is it? Um, you know, it's all legalese and it's legal jargon, right? And then it's written in collective bargaining form. So I don't know, it was three or 400 pages, but written in an outline form, you know, with, and, and it was just having a legal background makes it easier because that's a document constructed by lawyers for lawyers. And then they take that and condense it to a 20 page memo that they do now. That's pretty good. It's easier to understand, but you still get kind of crossed up and you really don't get that until you get in and start doing that work, which is what happened with me at the Grizzlies. But I had a fundamental understanding. I had sort of done enough work that I had something to offer. And I, I often say that to people. It's like, look, you may not be where you're going, but you should angle towards it. You should prepare for it. You should do stuff on your own to be educated in that area. So when whatever you're looking for, the universe presents it to you, you can respond. Did, did you ever become an agent in the States in MBA or no, you went to straight being an assistant general manager? I was a registered agent in the States. So you had to go through the Players Association. You know, you pay a pretty strong fee at the time and you get officially registered. So I do have my little card still <laughs> where I was an agent. Um, although I never really built that business to where I was an active NBA agent with clients. You know, I did a few small deals here and there, but it was nothing significant at all. And I then was in that business long enough to know I didn't really want to be an agent. Um, one of my best players that I had the biggest success story out of nowhere, he just fired me. And that happens to every agent, but I got the letter by FedEx and it kind of broke my heart. And, you know, that was one of those things where it's like, wow, this is a very transactional business. Cool. You just get burnt. And then funny postscript on that. My daughter is a freshman volleyball player at Boston college. Right. And she pieces it together that there's this teammate of hers from Illinois and it's that player's daughter. Get out of here. Yeah, they are the same. <laughs> That's classic. So I we think started. I met your daughter last time when you and I were speaking, she was there, she was visiting from Boston College with something. She was, she was at home. the house, she came in and said, hi. <clears throat> Very interesting. So, so the agent part, uh, is it, is it one of those things where it's the 80-20 rule and the 1% make it and 80% get flushed out as agents and only 20% stick around? And out of the 20%, you have one like a Rich Paul that's pretty much got a monopoly in the league. Is that pretty common on how it works or no? Yeah, I mean, historically, there's just a small handful of power agents that control the market because so much of that is who else do you represent? And those players and families get drawn to those big power agents. So the rich, you mentioned Rich Paul, you know, back in the day with David Falk and Arn Teller. Jordan, yep. You know, those sorts of agents, they would just be this gravitational pull for all the real talent. I was just on the periphery and I was drawn to Europe as an opportunity because there was more room to just hustle and make things work and grow and evolve cracking into the true NBA market was really hard because 
there's so few of those talented players every year, only 30 get drafted in the first round, right? So they're not hard to identify. And all the power agents, of course, are on them, you know, from day one. And what's the comp on it? Is the comp 10% or is it, what is the number on it? So back then the comp in Europe would be 10% of the contract upfront paid by the team to the agent. Upfront. So you'd get it up front. So if a guy signed for $100,000, you'd get $10,000 up front, right? Okay. In the NBA, if a guy signs for $100,000, no, it's not that. Let's make it $100 million. Um, the most you could get is 4%, and then that gets negotiated down by competition. And then that's paid over time by the player as he gets paid. So it's just a, it's a more difficult situation if you're trying to start out there because you've got to – It's not know, a lot of money it it's well it's become a lot of money on these bigger deals but with smaller deals it's not a lot of money and then you end up you're trying to collect it from your own player your own talent over time every two weeks it's just a challenge yeah but even if i signed a five-year hundred million dollar contract you get four percent let's just say they push it down to two million two and a half percent so it's two and a half million i'm making on on a hundred million and I'm not going to get paid that over a five-year period. So it's really $500,000 your income over a five-year period. That's not that crazy of a number. Right. Yeah. And, so, and that's if, as, and when you get it. Right. So. And uh, at any point the, the player can fire you, are you still committed to getting that contract that you got? Or how does that work out as an agent? Uh, if you got him the full $10 million deal and he fired you the day after you got it, you're still entitled to it. Okay, good. So, so at least the agent is protected. Legally you are, but then you got to go chase it, you know? So then you're, if you just play that out a little bit, if you're getting fired by a player in the, in, who's in the club and then you get in a fight with them to try to go collect what you're legally due, but then your reputation gets hurt. It's just a, it's a, it, it's a tough business for sure. Um, and as I say, I, I realized I wasn't meant for it, made for it, didn't want to do that. But what it gave me was an avenue to become active in the sports world and then relevant if something else came along, which it did. And, and, and for you becoming a GM, I mean, assistant GM at first with Jerry West for those seven years, which Jerry West to me, he's just a qualified genius who, is who he is. When the, when the Lakers lost him, there's a couple people when the Lakers lost that I was concerned. One of them was him. The other one was Kupchak. I don't know why. I kind of like Kupchak's style, and I also like Jerry's style. What was it like working with Jerry for those seven years at Memphis Grizzlies? Yeah, the, the, the path in was through Vancouver, right? We bought the mm -hmm. Vancouver Grizzlies, and then we moved them to Memphis. So there were two years without Jerry and then five with Jerry. Jerry then came into Memphis as the – president of basketball and it was amazing I mean at that time Patrick there was you play that game where you're like who would you want to have lunch with if there was anybody you could have lunch with and people would say Oprah or you know lately you know, you'd say Obama whatever it would be in my window there my answer was Jerry West because I wanted to learn something that was relevant to what I wanted to do well all of a sudden he was his office was like four feet from mine and his door is always open and he's a, he was an open book, right? He, he just would, would uh, allow and ask for help. And we worked very closely together with a, with a team of people. And it was just unbelievable. 
quite the experience and uh, you know, a lot of fun to work with. Um, he had true stardust sprinkled on him still at that age. He, he you know, did, what was interesting with Jerry was to see grown men in their 60s, just like fangirl out on him when they'd see him at a restaurant because they had seen him for, you know, 40 or 50 years. They had this familiarity with him as he, you know, he's one of those rare athletes that transformed himself into being just as successful in the second phase in a different way, right? So I never knew him as a player. I just knew him as this iconic executive, sort of what you're reacting to. But Jerry uh, was a, is a special person, you know, totally unique and was a lot of fun working with him. What was his recruiting style? I mean, there's different ways guys recruit. I, I kind of watched him closely to see how he recruited. I watched how Cupcheck recruited Dwight Howard. He brought him in, took him in one of the rooms. He says, look at the rafters. Look who's up there, the big man. Kareem, Will, Shaq, one day it's going to say Howard there. And then, you know, you kind of saw that didn't work out with Howard's personality because he didn't want that kind of pressure to be compared to the shadows of the guys. What was Jerry's style of recruiting? Well, we were recruiting a different caliber of athlete. We were doing a build from, you know, one of the worst teams in the league. So in a way it was drafting talent and then retaining talent and then getting guys on the, just getting talent at any level, but it wasn't those kinds of superstars where you're recruiting. It was more, let's get this guy to come. Let's identify, let's trade for him. A lot of those conversations happened very directly with agents. So that was where it was a, you know, I mentioned Arn Tellum as an example. So Arn was a very close friend of Jerry's. Arn represented Kobe Bryant and a number of the other key acquisitions through the years for the Lakers. And they were, I was surprised at just how close they were uh, personally. You know, I always envisioned that that'd be more of a contentious relationship and yeah, we hate agents and this and that. But what you learned, what I learned from Jerry was just the importance of deep, long-standing relationships with the power agents because so many of those guys control so much of the talent and they can really help fulfill what you're trying to accomplish. So that was part of the art, part of the science of what you'd call recruiting or talent procurement in the NBA. So he was a relationship salesman. So he sold through having strong relationships with agents because if he got the agents, he got the players. So is half the battle of recruiting players and having a good relationship with players through the agent? How much of it is the agent? How much of it is the family? How much of it is the wife? How much of it is the parents? How much of it is the player? Or does it vary player by player? Well, it's changed. Um, it was a little more agent driven back then. And in the modern era, I think it's a little more peer and player to player driven. So you see more and more the way that LeBron as a player combined with Maverick Carter and his agency that LeBron is an owner of, they're able to assemble the current Lakers roster in a way where they're doing a lot of the maneuvering and the manipulating and the straight up recruiting. You know, the, the, the straight up recruiting is technically illegal if it comes from any member of an other team, that's tampering. You can't tamper with current players on other rosters. Well, a loophole in that has been player to player where the players, we can't restrict what they do or say to each other. So over the last 10 years or so, that's really taken form. You know, even going back to 
Pat Riley was the last one in Miami to really assemble the big three down there with a true recruiting focus. He went in and sold them and pitched them. He had Wade, but he had to get Wade to recommit. And then he got LeBron and Bosch to join. But the, the other secret of that success was he got them all to take like 5 million less than they should have taken. That's right. 18 million, 19 million, 16 million. I don't remember the number. And I think even Bosch was getting the most money out of the three. Right. So they all took a haircut of 5 million that freed up 15 million a year to go get the next three, you know, the Mike Millers of the world, the way they all merged yeah. roster out and really gave them the, the finals championship caliber every year. So, um, but now it's much more, you know, James Harden goes to be with Durant and goes to be with Kyrie because there's direct conversations happening as part of that whole exchange. Uh, you know, when Chris Paul moves or maneuvers, he's talking direct with whoever he's going to be playing with. And of course, LeBron bringing Anthony Davis, represented by that same group, you know, that was the core, the key to transitioning the Lakers from worst to first. You think this is sustainable long term? Because, uh, you know, if you think about how the league was back in the days, take Michael, okay? Uh, so if you go era, Michael, and then go prior era, let's say, you know, well, I can't really say, well, let's just say Bird Magic, because they came in uh, when they came in. So Michael, then Kobe, Shaq, and then you got LeBron today. When Magic and Bird were running versus Michael versus LeBron and Kobe and today, could Magic and Bird or even Jordan do what LeBron is doing today to the league back in their era? Which aspect of it? The fact that, I mean, you, 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 if, you were, if I were to say to you right now, who is the most powerful figure in the NBA? It's, clearly if I would, it's LeBron, right? He has the most power that nobody has more power in the NBA than LeBron. He still keeps it. Now, his job is to stay healthy, relevant, do the things that he does, and he's a visionary guy. He's going to do big things. So he's doing his part, but he's the most powerful guy. But if I told you in 2000, the most powerful person in the NBA, would you have said Kobe or would you have said a different name? And if I was to tell you, let's go into 1991 when Jordan won his first, would you have said the most powerful person in the NBA is Michael or would it be Jerry Buss? Would it have been another Jerry or because it's changing based on who has the most power? Well, I'd say first in any era right there is the commissioner. I mean, the commissioner in each of those cases has tremendous power and because the commissioner represents the combined true power and of the ownership, right? So they will last past any player. Even uh, today? Oh yeah. I mean, if LeBron, LeBron couldn't take the lead down, LeBron could disrupt things and impact business for a little bit but the league will go on right and the, the sure of course the, of and, course but when you get into the most i would have said jordan i mean back in the day as i reflect on it in the in the early 90s when jordan was in his heyday he was you know massively uh influential powerful and you know global and but he wasn't and, they, and he, he was the draw because he and Pippen were such a solid base, they're able to flip all the other pieces around them and dominate and win six, effectively six in a row, because Jordan was gone for two of them. Um, 
So he was that dominant as a talent and as a draw. LeBron is, has been different because he's, wherever he's gone, it has followed, which is different. You know, Jordan was in one place and it all came to him. This notion of LeBron just going from Cleveland to Miami, four straight in the finals, goes right back to Cleveland where they were literally the worst and they get to first and they go to the finals. It was, you know, it's just incredible. Yeah. Then he does the same thing coming out here to LA, albeit it took a year. Um, that shows the, I don't know if back in that era, Jordan could have done that because it was a different time. You know, they're just, people wouldn't have been able to come with him the way they do now. Yeah, and also, I mean, David Stern was a different animal. David Stern was a, uh, 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 he was feared and respected. It was a different uh, uh, way. And I'm not saying Adam Silver doesn't have that kind of a personality, but Adam Silver comes across very different than Stern did. I just don't know if, if LeBron was to be playing in the 80s or 90s, could he have gone around and told everybody, hey, if it's not working out with the owner, leave the team. Hey, if it's not working out with the owner, leave the team. Like right now, players are just coming out and saying, look, I don't like playing with the team. I'm leaving. Hey, Anthony Davis, yeah. I don't want to be with the Pelicans. I'm leaving. So if I'm a small market and if I'm getting ready to spend $2 billion to buy a team, say 2 to $3 billion to buy any team in the NBA today, if I'm, if I'm a small market, what makes Michael think he's going to be able to keep LaMelo ball for more than seven years before he goes to Celtics or he goes to Miami or he goes to the Lakers or, you know, what makes Milwaukee think they can keep Giannis for another four years? Yeah, they just signed a contract, but almost the smaller markets are being bullied more today, but maybe it's been the same for decades. You're in it. What are your thoughts on it? Now that's changed. I mean, I personally hate this. I hate the fact that you can celebrate a long-term extension. Your Giannis example is a perfect one. You know, you feel like you got him locked up. You make these incredible financial commitment, all fully guaranteed the second he signs it, no matter what. And then he can James Harden his way out of here in a year or two. I mean, Harden just did it in Houston. As soon as it got unpleasant, as soon as they weren't consulting him on every move or whatever, you know, it just, he became, uh, crabby, cantankerous, and just, and Bogart his way right out of his deal. And, you know, undercuts the trade value on his way out because everybody in the league knows what the deal is. And it's, it's, a, it's a disturbing trend in the NBA for sure. Yeah, it, you know, all it does to me is I wonder, let's just say if I'm about, about, about to own a sports team, would I buy a small market or buy into a small market? I, not in today's league. I, I would be very concerned about being a small market in today's league. It would concern the hell out of me because, because today it's such a player's market that players are essentially bullying everybody. It's, it's full on bullying. They are bullying everybody. Now, don't get me wrong. If we go back in the eighties, we could say Jerry, the GM was bullying everybody on the bulls. So there was an element of that taking place. So the, the happy medium is kind of tough to be. It's almost like we go far one side, it's GM or ownership control. Then we go too much of a player side, it's player control. But we all know that LeBron's eventually going to own a sports team. You know, so, so how do you manage that balance the two between uh, the player and the owners? And the reality today, I would not want to own a sports team today if it was in a small market. Sort of depends. Depends on which league you're in. Green Bay Packers doing okay. 
right? That's I mean, the NFL though. Yeah. In the NFL, they're all profitable because of the way they share revenues and because of the massive media. I rate. agree. So every single team in the NFL is profitable, no matter how bad they screw it up. Just look in Jacksonville. Yeah. Right? And then uh, in the NBA with more revenue sharing now, the smaller markets have become, and with a, a subsidy from the league effectively, the, the smaller markets have become much more healthy financially. And then you do have some superstars who have maintained a significant presence in a small market. I mean, Damian Lillard right now seems just fine in Portland. Giannis is a good example. He's re-signed twice in Milwaukee and they're one of the best teams in the league because of his extreme talent. And then, of course, you had the success of the Spurs for decades in one of the smallest markets in the league. And the Utah Jazz right now are pretty darn good in a small market and so on and so forth. So all those rules in the league tend to give those small markets a fighting chance, except baseball. You know, that's where it's still just wacky. So let me ask you this. Having been around uh, Jerry and having been around a lot of different guys, then does that mean is the when, 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 you're, when you're putting a team together, what is your number one? Is your number one putting a coach like Pop together that's going to keep the players for a while? Or is the number one getting a good GM? Is the number one getting a superstar like Giannis? What is the number one to keep, uh, not necessarily the golden handcuffs, but to be able to get uh, a team that's willing to be in a market like San Antonio, which, you know, it's not necessarily the craziest set outside of the Three River Stadium and the Alamo. You got nothing really going on over there. I'm starting from day one. I want the best player because you need the best player to establish any kind of competitiveness and greatness. But if I want to start from scratch with this notion of what's most important, most important is committed ownership. So you need deep pocketed, passionate ownership that's in it for the right reason, because over time, that's what sustains things and wins. And you want a good head on that guy's shoulders or gal, whoever that owner is somebody that will then go hire good management. So in your San Antonio Spurs example, you had solid ownership that just got Popovich and RC Buford as this incredible tandem to lead basketball operations and to maintain this incredible level of success over the years in spite of being in a small market. It was just you know 20 years of exceptional work there. Um, but there's no question it's a talent game so in that scenario, if, if, you're, if you're giving me for one year the best owner, the best coach, or the best player, I'll take the best player. Who's the second? Second in that so hierarchy. So go, go with that. Do your draft. Best owner, best GM, best player, best coach. If first is best player, what's second? If it's for one year, it's the best coach because he's going to have the most influence on performance. Okay, give me if you want to build a legacy, like if you want to build a 10-year run. So if you're first as player, what's your second? Well, if it's a 10-year run, I, I, it's still best owner. You got to have the best owner to give you the chance to make all those maneuvers and, you know, and to do all that. Then you got to have great management. You know, just build it really? top. Got yeah. it. Okay, got it. So Look, you're going, you're going owner, GM, coach, player. Owner, GM, player, coach. Owner, okay, got it. Interesting. Owner, GM, player, coach. And why is coach last for you? Because the coach is only as good as his players. I mean, you know, the great coaches pick the great talent to go coach. <laughs> That's how it works. <laughs> um, 
yes, there's this theory that you get an amazing coach and he's going to max out whatever talent he has, but that's only within a, a small band of a small percentage. If, if you put Greg Popovich with the worst talent in the league, he may win them five more games. So they go from 15 wins to 20 or 22, but he can't take a 15 win talent and tip make, get it to 500. I wonder if he sees this, if he'll be offended by that. If he'll say, come on, you know, I'd, I'd take him into the playoffs, even if you gave me a bunch of scrubs, I'm sure he would agree with you on that. But so if that's the case, who would you put right now as the best coaches in the NBA? Hmm. Best coaches in the NBA. Well, Pop is still, you know, over time as good as it gets. Just a, a master. What, what I look for in a coach is a master relationship expert and a tactician, you know, and a competitor and everything that goes with that. And, and Greg Popovich is just truly amazing. Um, Eric Spolster has quietly done just a remarkable job wow. over the years down in Miami. Uh, you know, a great guy, a very incredibly hard, incredible hard worker, managed that unusual transition to come in and succeed Pat Riley, who's one of the biggest personalities and most respected just NBA studs, you know, just a, he's Pat's revered by so many folks for what he's done in so many different places and just kind of who he is. Um, and uh, Spolster has just done a remarkable job of uh, navigating through all that. So you put Spolster as second behind, uh, interesting. Well, I don't know. I don't have my list in front of me. There are plenty of others. He just jumped into my head. Yeah, I mean, listen, you, it's respect because even if you think about it, who the hell thought last year Miami was going to go to the finals and let alone win a couple? You yeah. know, nobody thought they were going to go that far. And that's a lot of credit for Spolstra. So here, here's the other question about the NBA. I'm curious to know what you'll say about this. Is, is LeBron getting paid what he's worth? This is how I kind of process it. And, and maybe I'm wrong. Hear me out. These guaranteed contracts, I'm not a fan of. However, I also don't think the players are getting paid accordingly. And this is what I mean by it. I am much for, like LeBron right now is making what, 39.6? I don't know the exact number. He's making what, 39.219. Okay, Curry's making 43. You got Westbrook making what he's making with 41. You got four people at 41, Westbrook, Paul Harden, and Wall. Durant's at 40, and then you got LeBron at 39. Okay, there's no way in the world LeBron's worth 39, okay? Uh, LeBron is, you know, when you got a Messi and some of the other soccer players making what they're making, I get it that soccer's got more viewership. It's more international. It's more bigger than the NBA and NBA is trying to kind of do that. But when a LeBron comes to your market, listen, everybody makes more money in that community. When LeBron comes to your market. So is a player like him where he is the face of the NBA, you know, Michael last year, I don't know what he got paid his last year, 30 million or some astronomical number that he got paid. And most of his career, he got underpaid. We think LeBron's getting paid what he's worth right now. You think it's closer to an 80 to $100 million a year player? I'd say more than that. I, I would mean, agree. Messi is more than that. And while global football, you're right, the economics are different. But those, you know, Barcelona doesn't make money. They're in debt. And that's because they got, can't lose a guy like Messi. So they go, you know, figure it out. Uh, you know, the maximum salary, the short answer is for sure LeBron is underpaid, not just because he's at 39 and other guys are at 41 or 42. It's because he should be more like 100, let's say. Right? I agree. Yeah. 
But the reason that happens is because of collective bargaining, because there's an economic system in place designed to make all the boats rise and to make all those teams be competitive. So the players get together and collectively bargain for these totally anti-American things. I mean, in no other industry can some arbitrary system decide where you can go work via the draft, right? But they agree to do that, totally un-American. The whole restricted free agency, you can't leave our team unless we get a chance to pay you just as much. Well, there's no other industry where that makes sense. Collective bargaining, maximum salary, we're gonna put a firm cap on the most money any player can make. Well, there's a minimum salary, right? So, you know, they're all making about a million bucks now. So those are the trade-offs that occur and LeBron as a superstar absolutely got squeezed and gets squeezed by having that mm. maximum keep his value down. Got it. So he is essentially helping a lot of the lower level players that would typically be a quarter million dollar year player or $400,000 player. He put him at a million. So when his comp went lower, they went, theirs went a little higher. If, if, if I pull off a Kyrie Irving and I say, guys, I don't feel like working the next two weeks, does the team still have to pay him or no? No, if the, well, if the player flat refuses to show up and work, he gets suspect, you know, there's a, there's progressive discipline that occurs, but including suspension, you don't pay. But these trade-offs that occur now more and more with the resting healthy guys, just for the sake of managing their minutes and, you know, this, this latest era of nobody plays 82 games anymore because they're going to rest them. You know, that's that slippery slope where you continue to pay guys to not work. And the league has tried to shut that down because, you know, we're all paying what we're paying. If we're allowed to go to a game, we as fans are paying that ticket price to go see the talent. And then it just doesn't show up. They're, they're trying to rectify that. Yeah, so the solution for that, if I was running a comp plan, is I would overpay a LeBron to a $100 million a year plan. But if a guy didn't play, you ain't getting paid either. So, so it would be, hey, Kyrie, you want to take nine games off? No problem. You're $31 million divided by 82 games. You just lost $31 million divided by 82 games times nine games that you missed just because you didn't want to show up. Yeah, uh, it's easy with specific examples, but in collective bargaining, they just set the rules of engagement. I'm sure they do. I, I'm sure they do. You've got a union yeah. that's watching out for every Kyrie Irving so that it doesn't happen to guys. Totally get it. Totally. You add a union to anything, these types of things happen. I just think a guy like LeBron, a, a guy like LeBron who brings whatever he brings to the market, he's not a $40 million guy. That's an $80 to $100 million guy, if not higher. Now, look, the argument would be that the system is so healthy and has worked so well, and it's such a healthy league that LeBron's able to beat LeBron on the rest of the stage and earn everything else that comes with it. So that'd be the, the overall argument as far as how that a healthy NBA gives the platform for LeBron to be LeBron. I mean, I don't own a team in the NBA yet, so but if I did, I would say, hey, guys, why don't we also protect the owners a little bit and protect the players? We'll play you a little bit more, but also at the same time, you know, we also want to be protected on this end. And uh, who knows how those conversations go. You know, you got to be careful with these lawyers, Tom. I mean, these lawyers, just very interesting lawyers. people, these lawyers are. That's right. Exactly right. So now you go to LA, LAFC. So you've done what you've done in the NBA. You go become an analyst at the uh, uh, ESPN. 
you know, you refused to take a position as a GM with 76ers. And by the way, what year was that when you said you don't want the GM position at 76ers? <laughs> I'm not sure it went down exactly like that, but uh, what year was that? Around 2013, maybe? I don't know. 12, when did, when did, when did, maybe? When did Embiid get uh, picked? What was the year Embiid got picked? Uh, way later. Yeah, way oh, way later. Got it. Okay. So 2013, who was there in 2012, 2013? Who's their best player? AI? Igadawa? Now, Doug Collins was the coach. Elton Brand was playing. Sorry, I can't remember. 2012 76ers. Wasn't Andre Igadawa on the. Yeah, Igadala was there. Yep. Yep. I'm curious now who it was. Okay. So you 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 decided to go play uh, uh, Larry Allen, Elton Brand, yeah, Elton Brand, Drew Holiday, Andre Iguodala, uh, uh interesting squad, Lou Williams. Yeah, but that was yeah that was a period of time where uh, I interviewed with them. Was you know went through the whole process. Uh, didn't didn't happen. Didn't work out. And you know, just why don't you want to be a GM? What what what, kept what moving forward? At that time, I kind of did want to be a GM. It was just a matter of finding the right fit. Got it. Got um, it. Look, I, I had done this sports summit in Aspen that brought together sports owners from around the world. And then we did other best practice summits for college athletic directors for sports management. So that got me out of the silo of being in basketball operations and being a GM. And it sort of broadened my entire look into other sports and into other jobs, you know, being the president of a team, for example. Uh, and then from that ecosystem in Aspen with the sports owners came the investors for LAFC. And we were able to put together a really compelling group to come to Los Angeles and get a major league expansion team and the chance to build a whole club from nothing. You know, it was just in, in October of 2014, we were an idea and the, LAFC.com was available and we went and snuck out and bought it and we decided we'd kick off with that identity and then you know everything happened from there where we just basically you know created the whole thing out of nothing it was fun and that was a sick experience I bet I mean you were the president you were president of it for how long five or six years you yeah six so yeah I was the sort of the first person hired but we had been in pursuit of the team so we had put together the group to acquire the team and so I had assembled the ownership group along with uh, Henry Wynn was an investor from Vietnam who came in initially. And then Peter Goober, who owns the Warriors and the Dodgers and is an iconic Hollywood figure, was big in music and giant in film, chairman of Sony. And then he's reinvented himself as just a, a really, really well-respected sports owner. So Peter became our executive chairman and was this linchpin partner that made the whole thing work and we were awarded the expansion franchise in major league soccer and you know had made a financial commitment to build a brand new stadium and there hadn't been an outdoor stadium built in los angeles since dodger stadium in 1962 so it wasn't an easy thing to do but we were able to incrementally do it we built bank of california stadium which is just this absolutely spectacular venue right in the heart of the city, uh, really an unbelievable experience. You know, one of the, I say it's the best fan experience in sports 
in, in, in America, it's just an incredible experience because the fans sing the entire time. It's this just joyous, super passionate atmosphere that you don't find even in college. College football is similar with the band and the rhythm of a student, student section, but the LAFC game is like amazing because it's just so organic and you got regular people coming together singing and cheering and drinking beer and throwing beer when we score goals. It's cool. How, how big do you think it's going to, how big do you think soccer is going to get in the U.S.? You think it's eventually going to get to the point where we'll win a World Cup in the next decade, two decades, three decades? What do you think? Uh, those are two separate questions. So the, the, the part about winning the World Cup is a tactical question about whether we can get a pipeline and a system of talent development that's on par with what's in the rest of the world. Our competitive advantage in a way is we're such a big country with so much talent. Our disadvantage is we're such a big country with so much other opportunity. And it's really hard to train players in Los Angeles the way they'll train in Texas, the way they'll train in the Philadelphia, New York area, for example. Those are just, those are like separate countries when it comes to the whole approach, the whole ethos of the way, you know, the, the ideology, whereas yep. you go to Germany and they were able to come up with their whole system and then just take all the talent, put it into that one sport and build it into that juggernaut that the German national team became. Um, I don't know if we can do that. There, there's a lot of effort and conversation around it. And as soon as we start getting our best athletes physical athletes drawn to that sport where they can stay in that sport. That's what's important with MLS's development is there's now a clear professional path forward in that sport that can be appealing where they can make money. And that hasn't been there for generations. So that's as it relates to the national team, as it relates to just the trajectory of the sport in general. I don't know that it eclipses something like American football or the NBA, but there's a lot of room for it to grow and the media attention can be massive in America. And then there's no other global sport. I mean, let's not fool ourselves. The NBA is not anywhere near football, global football when it comes to relevance. I mean, you know that. It's That's just, true. Yep. But I always thought the NBA was global. Being in soccer, there's nothing like it. Yeah, it's craziness with soccer. I mean, it's a whole different story. And, and Carlos Villa, I just pulled up his salary, 2018, $4.5 million, uh, uh, what he was making. So some of these guys starting to make some checks, which is good for the younger guys. Would, would in this case, would it be the same as building a 10-year legacy on a team, meaning you need a good owner, then you need the right GM, then you need a player, then you need the right coach? What would need to happen for America to commit to winning a you know, World Cup, do we need to go recruit the biggest, best coaches and trainers and bring them in and teach other coaches in the U.S. how to coach other kids? So all of a sudden there's a 90-day camp of coaches in U.S. from Texas, from Philadelphia, from Florida, from California, come go through a camp of how to train their guys. How would you build that up in America? Well, it's, I don't have that answer or we would have done it. You know, they've tried different things in America. Those are different things. So with a national team, it's a different experience. That it's a they're never together for 90 days. Maybe if they're at a World Cup and they go the whole way. So you get the best talent, you bring them together for in windows of like 
one, two, and four weeks, or maybe for a long summer competition, it's six weeks. It's just, and then they continue to play on their professional teams the whole time. So they just take a break in the soccer schedule. The best players go play for their national teams for two weeks and then they come back and they keep going and they play year round. So it's a different coaching challenge. So they, the U.S. went out and got Jurgen Klinsmann, who from the German national team, from that way of life, thinking they could replicate that way. And that didn't work. They've had homegrown coaches like Bob Bradley, who's the coach at LAFC. He had a ton of success in building uh, a team that went well, but then that ended quickly. Right. So it's just, it's a different, it's a completely different animal. And if I had an answer to your question as to how to systematize the nation, our nation with our size and our challenges, I'd be in a different role, making a lot more money. <laughs> I'd, I'd be curious to know what country used the model that worked that they went from nobody to somebody. That's what I'd be curious about because when you typically think about it, who do you think about? You think about uh, Brazil, you think about Argentina, you think about Germany. I was in Germany in 1990 when they won it. You think about France, Italy, you think about some of these guys, but how about the country that was irrelevant that came and won and how did they do it? I'd be curious to know what their model was. But, you know, Beckham obviously came and he played, which was big when he came out and then Zlatan came out and I went and watched Zlatan play. It was ridiculous watching how folks in LA were reacting to Zlatan playing and the whole controversy between Zlatan and Vey. I think that was needed for the MLS, believe it or not. I think there's some kind of a animosity. You need somebody like that. Do you think a Messi or Ronaldo will eventually play in the MLS? I do. I think Ronaldo will sunset his career here just to transition to the rest of his life. Could. I think that's a, a natural. How about Messi? I don't know. Maybe. Messi's less interested in all that stuff. Messi's more just about expressing his art, playing his tail off, you know, being compensated for it. He's less... Uh, diverse dynamic in terms of his interest level you know i think Tom, last top last topic before we wrap up you did some stuff with upper upper deck before were you ever a baseball card or basketball card guy or not oh, really i wasn't uh-uh. you really yeah no, you no, were no. not well i am I, I i recently sold a couple gretzky cards for two million dollars it was the most expensive hockey card sold so i i've been in cards for 30 years and the only reason I brought up cards is because you got Upper Deck to sponsor you when you're going to Europe. So maybe you had a connection with cards. What do you think about these crazy things going on with cards right now? Dirk's card sold on his birthday for $4.6 million. It's lunatics like you willing to trade in this. I don't get it. Let me ask you. You really sold two Gretzky cards for that kind of money? Two Gretzky cards for... One of them I sold for um, one of them I sold for one point two nine million dollars, and the other one I sold for seven hundred and twenty thousand uh, dollars. Yeah, it was all over the news, and it was pretty and intense. Were those originals that you had from the beginning, or did you buy them? I bought them for uh, I bought them for five hundred and forty thousand dollars, both of them, eighteen months prior to me selling it. So I bought it for five forty. Eighteen months later, sold it for two million ten thousand dollars. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. The world of cards is a different card. I don't know if you saw what a guy named Beeple just did last week when he sold an NFT. Are you familiar with NFT market or not really? <laughs> okay. Let me put it to you this way. This guy is a graphic designer. Okay. He designs something new every day for 5,000 days. Okay. 5,000 days. 
He makes a collage of it. You've not seen this. I'm surprised you've not seen this. He makes a collage of it, okay? Collage of it, which means take the 5,000 pictures and you turn it into one collage. Right. He puts it on Christie's auction, which you may be familiar with Christie's auction. It's the bigger auction. They do the Van Gogh's. They do all the bigger stuff. The auction starts on February 26 with the first bid at $100. Tom, this is a blockchain art. You can't put it up on the wall. It's a picture that you keep crypto, right? Type of a crypto type of thing. They call it non-fungible tokens. Started at $100 February 26. It sold on March 11th for what do you think? <laughs> Tell me. <laughs> just, I just want you to actually guess. I really want you to guess. Give a big number. I'm, I'm well, going to... 12 million. Okay, you ready? I'm going to show it to you just to see your reaction. Okay. <laughs> it sold. Tom, this is crazy stuff. I had a conversation with this guy yesterday. Here's what it sold for. You ready? Wow. $69 million. Wow. We are living in a very different era today. Who bought it? A guy named Meta, uh, Meta Coven, Meta, Meta something, a guy that's a fan of his content and what he creates. Now, you got to realize this guy named Mike Winkleman is known in the market. He's phenomenal at what he does. I hope but so. he, you know, to sell, to sell an art that you can't hang up anywhere. And if anybody else shares it, you don't make residuals on it. You just get to say you own that token for 69 million bucks. Crazy. Yeah. So you, but, but for yourself, you went from that into a complete different business yourself, right? You've been doing a, why don't you tell everybody what you're doing? I know it's a pretty good size industry and you guys have been able to get the accounts for the NBA. Uh, I think, uh, what is it? NBA MLS and the Dodgers. Is that what you have you? Yeah. So this is a company called co-protect where we're doing branded disposable face masks is another PPE. So we took the boring blue medical mask and commercialize it with all sorts of fashion on a disposable mask and yeah the signature stuff in sports is big we're doing all of march madness so when you watch any of the games in the tournament this month uh you're gonna see all there's 750,000 masks out there that we did with all sorts of different designs the nba major league baseball major league soccer team usa uh we've got some big news coming in global football you know, go down the list, bunch of PGA tour events, uh, number of big colleges, all that sort of stuff. So we've just dominant in sports. We're the leaders in, in branded protective equipment. Let's put you know, it's, you know, 2020 was a $72 billion industry. Yeah. yeah. It's a pretty big industry you're a part of. Well, Tom, it's been a blast talking to you. Appreciate you for coming on. Obviously a different direction of a conversation, but a lot to learn about the business side of the MBA and how a person like you went from working with your dad as an attorney to going to an agent in Europe. And then from there going to working with Vancouver, Memphis, and then a bunch of different experiences in ESPN and then MLS and now doing what you're doing. Yeah, cool. Well, great. Enjoyed it. Congrats on all your success. Are you going to sell any cards later today? I'm going to probably sell a lot of cards and I'll tell you about it. If you want to buy a couple, I got a few, if you want to buy some. No, we should talk. Maybe we'll go in on one or something. I look forward to it. We should, we should. Tom, good talking to you, buddy. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
For those of you guys that watched the entire interview, I don't know if you know this or not, everything we talked about in this interview has to do with business, whether it's recruiting, who you get first, timing, sequencing, money, dollar negotiation, career path, what direction you go to, people you meet, and how you go from being a guy working under your father, eventually becoming the president of LAFC, that Magic Johnson's involved, Will Ferrell, all these Peter Group, all these people are involved. So I hope you stuck around for the entire thing, and if you enjoyed this interview, and you learned a lot from the business of the NBA. You're going to enjoy my interview I did with Stephen A. Smith last year. If you've not watched it, click, click over here to watch the interview with Stephen A. I think if you like this one, you will get a kick out of that as well. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.